0: And hello out there to all you Brooklyn folk, and especially tonight beyond. Uh, Live from Flatbush, this is the Bedford & Sullivan Podcast, the podcast that keeps you, the audience, active listeners in the Brooklyn Dodgers TV series research process. And as always, we we like to check in on our upper Manhattan rivals, uh, the New York baseball giants. Uh, For some of you out there, you might not even know uh, that There was a Giants baseball team. Sometimes I come across people that don't even know that the San Francisco Giants used to play in New York. They might not be baseball fans, but it's still the education continues. And uh, the New York football Giants are literally called that corporately still to this day because they get their name from the New York Giants of Upper Manhattan, the polo grounds. And somebody continuing the legacy, continuing – to champion the legacy of that baseball team from the polo grounds is Gary Mintz of the New York Giants Preservation Society. Welcome, Gary, as always.
1: Sam, pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me back.
0: Of course. And we also have somebody who hails from Brooklyn, but really is all over the New York baseball map, and really the baseball map in and of itself, and that is the Brooklyn trolley blogger Mike LeColant. Hey, Mike. How are you doing?
2: Hello, thank you very kindly. And, uh, yeah, baseball, I'm uh, I'm excited to talk about the New York Giants and uh, always excited to talk baseball. So thank you very much for letting me participate.
0: Of course. And, you know, we're going to get to what you were documenting recently uh, regarding the New York baseball Giants as well as the New York baseball Yankees. And there was a New York football Yankees, so that, that isn't so crazy to say, uh, to differentiate. But I'm going off the rails a little bit. Let's get back on track. And first, I'm going to go to you, Gary, uh, regarding uh, something that we have not talked about since he got into the Hall of Fame, and that is Gil Hodges today on his birthday. And unfortunately, of course, it was the 50th anniversary of his death a couple of years a couple days ago, excuse me. So your your impression's... First off, on Gil Hodges getting into the Hall of Fame.
1: Uh, way too long. Totally respected man, player, manager. Uh, certainly a long time coming. Um, I think New York Giant fans, all baseball fans, have nothing but total respect for him. And uh, I'm so happy I have a lot of Dodger friend, uh, friends who were championing championing him for this uh, act, for this um, place in the hall, and thank goodness he uh, got in because I had friends who said they would never go back to the Hall of Fame until he was put in. So they did the right thing. Um, I also am a former teacher, and many many years ago I uh, I wrote baseball mock trials, and one of those trials was on whether or not Hodges belonged in the Hall of Fame. And the verdict was read by a series of uh, lawyers, and they granted him his place in the Hall. Uh, unfortunately, I had to wait probably a decade. I don't, I don't even remember when I did that, probably about 2008, maybe 2007. So, but the uh, wait was worth it for him and his family.
0: It sure was, and um, I, I want to loop over to you on uh, this birthday of his, Mike, and, and you know, uh, of course we're here overall to talk about the New York Giants, but uh, the, the I, you know, I'm going to have to look up exactly what his stance were against the New York Giants. He was a, a big part of that rivalry in the 40s and 50s.
2: Oh, without a doubt, Uh uh, I have all these thought bubbles exploding over my head right now. Uh but if you think and not just here, anywhere. Uh, you know, Gil Hodges has has passed some time ago and yet we speak of him as if as as if he were still among us. Uh he's in our daily conversation. And there's very, very few people in any realm of life that, you know, Uh, We can say that about Gil Hodges is is special. And uh, uh, it's just uh, a great ball player. Uh, It's ponderous to me why it took so long. I think the evidence was clear. Uh, He dominated for at least a decade. And uh, his participation in this rivalry between Brooklyn and upper Manhattan, uh, you know, He's right up there with the Titans amongst them all. So, uh...
0: Yeah, that, that he was. And I, I am now curious as to what his numbers were. And I'm going to have to look that up in a, a moment. But I'm, I'm going to go to the owner and proprietor of the New York Giants Preservation Society, Gary Mintz, to give us, as we always like to call it, a shameless plug. Uh, you've been on – A few times, Gary, however, there could be very well somebody listening who does not know about the New York Giants Preservation Society. So please, shameless plug away and let us know what you guys have been up to lately.
1: Thanks, Sam. Well, you know, we've been an organization for over a decade. Um, Initially, we set up the organization uh, to have live meetings in Manhattan. We used to have, you know, three or four a year. And it it was very difficult. Um, The organization, I I started it. um, My father used to attend New York Giant Historical Society meetings, and he passed away, and I got a call, and uh, one thing led to another, and eventually uh, I took uh, over the organization, so to speak. Um, Somebody has to, so I I decided I I would be that person in fear of... uh, the organization just going, um, you know, uh, bottoms up. Um, anyway, uh, because of COVID, we did not have any live meetings, and somebody said to me, hey, you know, maybe we could do some uh, virtual meetings. Um, and I wasn't too keen on that right away. I was retiring as a school teacher. Didn't really, know, you know, I was teaching students on the computer, but I didn't know if I'd be able to really uh, manage this. But um, you know, uh, I I did learn how to do that, and since 2020, we've had over 65 Zoom guest speakers. Usually, have them every Thursday. Uh, I would say in a month, uh, you know, in a in a four month, I'm sorry, a four week month. We probably have three speakers in a five-week month, four speakers. And when I say speakers, Sam, I mean, you know, just top-of-the-line people. And for all you uh, Dodger fans, you know, a couple years back we had Carl Erskine, who was 95. And I mean, sharp as a tack. And, you know, we got him to speak about the rivalry between the Giants and the, uh, the Dodgers. And he was just, uh, he was terrific. And we've had uh, John Miller. We've had uh, uh, countless writers who wrote books about both the New York and the San Francisco Giants. A lot of the members in our group, um, even though it's a New York-based group and it's a New York Giant organization, um, remained uh, loyal to the Giants when they moved out west. And I think the main reason was, of course, Willie Mays. So. As as much as I love getting people to talk about the New York Giants, I do mix in some San Francisco uh, people, uh, and most of those you know have great reverence for the Giants past, and they bring it up. You know, John Miller spoke, and you know the first words out of him were Russ Hodges and 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 the like. So, uh, tremendous amount of guys, um, knowledge in the group. It's, it's a great group to work with, and, uh, you know. He said, "I'm the leader. I'm just one of the people, and uh, it's our group, so to speak. So I just organize it. So, but uh, the group is growing, not not shrinking, which is which is always a great thing. So that's our spiel.
0: You do a fantastic, uh, yeah, you do a fantastic job, Gary. And of course, uh, I've been to some of the events uh, before 2020 that. That uh, have been organized. Um, And speaking of Willie Mays, it was incredible uh, after I believe it was the 2016 World Series championship that uh, a lot of us got to go see Willie Mays as well as Joe Panic, uh, local boy, uh, over at. uh, Remind me where where it was again, please.
1: It was in. uh, I, I it could have been the Westin Hotel, and that was January 2015. 2015 after the 2014 World Series.
0: Oh, I wish geez, it was geez. another one in 2016. I, <laughs> and and you know that was at the hands you guys moved on at least at the hands uh, of beating my uh, my New York Mets. And so maybe I was just um, yeah getting getting a little confused uh, there and also hoping that the Mets won the uh, were in the World Series the year after that, but in 2017 is a whole nother losing story on the New York metropolitan park. But I do digress. So 2015, like you were saying uh, about seeing Willie Mays in person.
1: Yeah. You know, that was an incredible, you know, Mays showed up at all three of the trophy tours in 2011, 2013 and 2015. Uh, Again, the January's after they had won, you know, the uh, fall classic. And, and, The members there, I mean, I've said this before, and I'll I'll say it again. I I don't like seeing grown men cry. But that being said, when he entered the room, these 70- and 80-year-old men were crying, a lot of them, because this was their guy, their hero, and they didn't see, you know, an 80-year-old man or 85, whatever he was at the time, they saw a twenty-five to thirty-year-old man, young guy, running the bases, hat flying off, you know, uh, sliding into a base, and just being the greatest all-around player the the game has ever seen. So that put a real smile on my face, knowing that these guys, maybe none of them or some of them, never really got to see him, and here they were in you know shouting distance of him, and it it. it it gave me a real great feeling and i owe that yeah, to the and, uh, and i i owe it to the san francisco giants for you know calling upon us and inviting us to uh to attend these private brunches because you know the dodgers won the world series a few years back they didn't bring the trophy to new york cuz nobody would show up yeah
0: <laughs> Yeah, and Walter O'Malley, Walter F. O'Malley, and, and the F is actually exactly. his middle name, uh, even though it, I'm sure a lot of people have put a, a certain word in between Walter and O'Malley to represent that F before. Mike, you know, you you uh, you really are a scholar of the the American game, and I really hope one day we can get you to the Gotham Club out in San Francisco, because... The Giants out there have done such a wonderful job at their new park uh, honoring their New York history. And the Gotham Club, which, which is, I believe, a season ticket holder uh, a place, or, or at least uh, something that higher-end ticket holders can go see, they, they, they do such a wonderful job with the feeling that you're in a, a kind of like an old location, really, that, that is back in New York. And it's actually, I believe it's the first place that I ever saw the photograph of Dave Ruth in a New York Giants uniform next to John McGraw, which was was from a championship. Uh, I'm sorry, excuse me, a charity game. Um, but I, I really hope you as a scholar get to see the San Francisco job they've done honoring New York.
2: I, I, I would love to see that. I, I really would. Uh That would be nice uh, if I could ever get out there and see that. But we mentioned two people so far, Gil Hodges and Willie Mays. You know, that's where my baseball education really started. Uh, Sam, as you know, uh, I finally got settled in Brooklyn. Uh, I was born, you know, when I was born, we lived up in Washington Heights. And by the time I settled in Brooklyn, Uh, that's right around the time that Gil Hodges passed away. Uh, So my education about him and the Brooklyn Dodgers started then. But simultaneously, going to Met games, uh, especially uh, with my mother, my aunt, her sister, and my uncle and my father, that's when my education about Willie Mays started, when he came to the Mets. And that's all my aunt spoke about was Willie Mays. So those two people, I was probably educated earliest and 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 mostly uh, more than any Met at the time, even Tom Seaver, because we would sit there at Chase Stadium watching Met games, uh, but we'd be talking Willie Mays, my aunt, and aunt. So it's uh, you know it's ironic that we spoke of these two gentlemen, and it, truly and honestly, my baseball education started. With those two gentlemen, and I'll throw in Hank Aaron, because uh, he was the first person uh, that uh, I would say at the at the time this seven year old, uh, the first baseball player I ever deified, and uh, I think that's appropriate, <laughs> right?
0: I would uh, I would say so, um, and you know it's just come to my attention that Tommy Davis has passed the late Tommy Davis, who was a Brooklyn born uh, a man and something That's I'm right. just finding out now, uh, his first year over there with the Los Angeles Dodgers, he got one plate appearance in 1959 at age 20. I, I went when I saw that he had passed, um, and I'll go to you first, Gary, when I saw that he had passed, I was wondering what his, uh, minor league experience with, under the Dodgers organization was, and i uh, he went to Boys high School in Brooklyn, New York, and I'm gonna have to find out exactly where that was. but uh, you know uh, my heart goes out to his family and the entire Dodgers organization. Uh, if you can speak briefly if you if you know anything, Gary, about Tommy Davis,
1: I just knew him as a Los Angeles Dodger. And mostly, you know, he was a very, very good hitter. Um, When he first started playing, those were my, like, beginnings as a fan. I I became a fan in 69, and I remember him on the Dodgers in the early 70s. Um, Don't really know that much about him for me to comment and and act like I do, other than I know he was always known as a hitter, not as a, uh, you know, as, as a fielder.
0: Mike in the D League for Brooklyn in 1957 at age 18, he batted 3.57 with 17 home runs and 104 RBIs before taking his talents to the West Coast with the rest of the organization. Um, I, you know, I we don't talk much about the Los Angeles side of things here, uh, but again, especially now, finding out that he was a Brooklyn-born player. Uh, you know, uh, rest easy, Tommy.
2: Uh, indeed, uh, you know, Brooklyn-born, and we're proud of that. And uh, you know, back in those days, you really had to prove yourself in the minor leagues; otherwise, you didn't get promoted. You needed to be good, and the farther back, the harder you had to, work, the harder you had to work to break into the big leagues. You know, now, comparatively speaking, it's rather easy. But Tommy Davis came up in an area where you really, really have to prove yourself in the minor leagues in order to break in with the big club. So, kudos to him. And uh, he turned in some good work, a couple of batting titles. Uh, He played for the Mets the year I was born. So, obviously, I don't remember that. But uh, it's nice to know that he was a, a 300 hitter for the Mets in 1967.
0: Yes, this was the uh, last year that they lost, well, let me say, in the 60s, this was the last year that they lost 100 games, which was uh, a, a yearly occurrence for the New York Metropolitans in the, the 60s. And uh, looking at this, he batted 302 with 16 home runs and 73 RBIs for the Metsies in 1967. So, again, um our heart goes out to the Davis family and uh, rest easy, Tommy. Um, and I, I'm going to explore him a bit more uh, coming up uh, uh, just on my own personal uh, side of things. And uh, Mike, before I go, where is boys high school? Do you know, is this still in existence as that name?
2: If I'm thinking of the correct, School. I'm thinking boys and girls high school, and I'm thinking of the high school over on Marcy Avenue, mm-hmm. over by Hallswood uh, and Putnam. Uh, one of those two blocks, but definitely uh, off of yeah, Marcy Avenue. I think Avenue. you're right. Okay, so uh, that that would be it then.
0: Yeah, Bedford Stevenson. It looks like it's off of um, Fulton Street uh, between. Uh, Malcolm X Boulevard, and I'm trying to see right here, but uh, it, it, it's Apple Maps, not Google Maps. but I'll, I'll have to look that up.
2: Then that's not the school I'm thinking of. The school I'm thinking of, I, I like I said, I think it's Boys and Girls High School. Uh, it goes way back right, now. Right, talking... it would make
0: sense. No, I think you're right, though, because it, it's looking like Marcy Avenue, like you said, Boys yeah. High School Brooklyn, it, it's, oh, wow, yeah, it's a New York City landmark. Um, but, uh, of course, I'm going off a, a, a bit of a tangent, but I was just very curious about that. And Wikipedia has plenty to say. So anybody who's also curious can look it up on Wikipedia, Boys High School Brooklyn. Um, I'm I'm going to go back to Gary here, and um, I, I, if you could deep cut for us some of the things that has been on your mind regarding New York Giants history.
1: Yeah, sure. First of all, I just wanted to apologize about one thing. For some reason, I said the early 70s, I was thinking about Willie Davis, the, the center fielder. So Tommy Davis, I just remember, as I said, as a hitter, but he, of course, won his titles and his big hitting with, with the Los Angeles Dodgers long before I became a fan. So just don't like to make uh, bad errors like that. And I remember, actually, a game where Willie Davis made three errors in center field for the Dodgers. But, okay, so <laughs> let's back to So what was the question again? I'm so sorry.
0: No, it's okay, Gary. Um, I was just wondering if you could deep cut for us what's on your mind regarding New York Giants baseball history. Uh, What's on our minds? A couple of
1: things. Um, A lot of the guys in the group are, are working, when I say working, are behind the plan to have the ballpark oracle park named willie mays field at oracle park um they wanted to do that for mays's 90th birthday which was may 6th of last year but you know the giants first of all it's a whole corporation oracle corporation and second of all with covid and and the games and getting people to the stadium i mean that's the last thing on their mind i'm sure but it, it's it's something that that you know the feeling is they have Ricky Ma, uh, Ricky Henderson uh, feel that whatever the Oakland Coliseum is, that that stadium changes names more often than anyone I know of. So that that's one thing that um, ha, has come to mind. Also, you know, I reached out to the people and I have not. Heard any responses there there's like a lot of signage at the polo ground towers, and they did a great job changing uh the uh, the apartment signs and uh the sign says polo ground towers is now orange and black but you know where home plate is 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 uh, uh there's a plaque there it it's it's really decrepit and it needs needs to be fixed up and there's another sign that said willie may's plate here and it's all sun bleached And I know they have bigger uh, fish to fry, but these would be, I think, uh, you know, somebody in New York, uh, the city with history involved, maybe can do something to fix those signs up because they're part of history and there are things that should not be forgotten. Uh, Otherwise, they wouldn't have been put there in the first place. Uh, Those are a couple of things uh, that we're brewing about. I also in my own mind they the giants have a um have a wall in San Francisco uh to honor players and uh there's some criteria for being on that wall uh but i also feel that uh it should be a franchise wall not just a San Francisco wall i mean the giants really do a great job inside of the stadium with the retired numbers and, and the uh, world series flags from New York there, and, and like you said, the Gotham Club. But, you know, when you're looking at a, a, a you know, a uh jersey retired number there in Carl Hubble, you know, a nice plaque outside explaining to these young fans, well, why is that number up there? Well, here's the reason. He did this, this, and this. And uh, I think it would only, you know, be more interesting to the people in San Francisco who, maybe just don't have any idea of why these things are the way they are. So those three things are some of the things. We, we are also involved. There is going to be a documentary, an HBO documentary out probably in the fall on Mays, and some of the members were um, uh, invited to uh, speak to uh, uh, the people making the movie, and they will appear in the movie when it comes out. So that's something to look forward to on HBO.
0: Yeah, that's going to be fantastic. I look forward to that. Um, yeah, so many things you touched on, and Mike, I will go this direction. Um, there's so many different places uh, up and down the East Coast that can claim to be the mouth of America, the the, the first uh, uh, place that that you know got this entire thing started, and, and I think uh, in many ways. Hudson entering the harbor uh, is a big reason why we have this area now, uh, the way that it has developed. But you and I have touched upon before how terrible one of the oldest cities in America has done to honor their history, how how awful of a job they have done throughout the city, whether it be Brooklyn, uh, upper Manhattan or otherwise to honor sports or non-sports related, uh, how important this place is.
2: Uh, It wouldn't surprise me if Mr. Brush or uh, Mr. Abbott had the same conversation with somebody back in their day. Uh, New York City does a terrible job of preserving its history, baseball or otherwise. Uh, It's constantly churning. Uh, constant, uh, real estate, you name it, it's constantly turning. So it's hard, uh, you know, when you build a city on three islands and one portion of the mainland, uh, it's a fight for space. Uh, I, I don't know what else to say other than, you know, I find it incredulous that here in New York City, yeah, sure, there's Cooperstown, but here in New York City, we don't have our own uh, library and museum, even on a small scale. Because if you think about it, if you go way back, I mean, look, the Giants go back to, what, 1883. And we know the game goes farther back than that, back to the 1850s, 40s, 30s. There was something called an, New England game. There was something called the Philadelphia game. But the New York game trumped them all. And if we really think about it, New Yorkers, New York City, New Yorkers, New York baseball fans, we've been rooting for baseball longer than anybody else in this whole country. Because the game started here. And, you know, circling back to what the city does or doesn't do to preserve and promote its incredible history uh, i've always found that as a, a just a complete oversight uh, as Carrie says or alludes to the powers that be people who are in control of these things uh perhaps these need to be fan efforts and the money needs to be you know generated from fans but we still need uh figures we still need uh, figureheads and people who will help us. Uh, and I don't know. I, I I've always thought that, whether it be Brooklyn or Manhattan, New York City should long ago have had its own library slash museum. Sure, the library at Forty Second Street uh, has you know, vast archives of information and baseball history over there. And we have Greenwood Cemetery where most of those people back from the 1840s and 50s are interred. And some of those stones, you know, read the father of baseball, et cetera. But, you know, uh, not centralizing this city's baseball history. into one location where tourists would just flock. I I find that a little ponderous.
0: Yeah, Gary, go ahead, please. I, I was
1: I, I can't agree more with Mike. I mean, I, I am a former teacher and I taught history and I took my students we had to go to Philadelphia, we had to go to Washington and we had to go to Boston to learn about the American revolution. New York City has done basically nothing when you when you think about the historic landmarks in New York City, the only thing you, anybody ever brings up is Francis Tavern, because Washington ate there in the Sons of Liberty. And, you know, there's a marker out in the harbor, you said about Hudson, you know, that uh, Peter Minuet bought Manhattan Island. There's a little marker there, but with the uh, advent of real estate and the importance of it, I mean, they just bulldoze over everything. So there's... Nobody is coming to New York City to go on a historical tour because there's nothing to visit. It really isn't. I mean, we did a walking tour by the Polo Grounds, and that was great because there was a few items. Hey, this is where Willie Mays, you know, lived, but there's no marker there. Because it's an apartment building, and and the Brush stairways there, and you know, they they named a few of the streets after Mays over there, but. I really think they dropped – New York City dropped the ball on its history, and and there's no way really to get it back because once you bulldozer and build a skyscraper, there, there's there's nothing
0: to do. And So, Mike, do you think that's just, uh, you know, kind of – do you think that's just a symptom of what this city represents about – Ever since the beginning, it's kind of always been about forward progress. And, and, you know, of course, to the detriment of places like Penn Station and Ebbets Field and the Polo Grounds. Um, But do you think that's just one of the big – it's both uh, the lack of space that we have, at least especially in Manhattan, uh, as well as the idea that this is always about – commerce and and moving forward as quickly as possible?
2: Well, you know, there's little grains of truth in everything. Uh, Every other city, basically every other city in this country gets to spread out. We can't. We have to move up. We have to build up. And that's why we have all these skyscrapers. Uh, I just lost my train of thought. Uh... Get me back on, Sam, quick. <laughs>
0: oh, this is uh, what I was about I'm sorry.
2: This is what I was... I, you know, this is somewhat symptomatic of New York City. It, it comes with the territory. I have always said, New York City is not America. America is not New York City. New York City is one of those international cities. Uh, and now here in, in the 21st century... It no longer belongs to the residents, it's truly a city of the world, you know. So, it, it makes it even harder for us to preserve history. Uh, whereas you go to other cities in this country and other cities, preserving the history is much more easier and feasible. Uh, but here it's so tough. We spoke of real estate, uh, and the constant spillover uh, in in this city. Uh, People come and people go. And Sam, you know, we throw this factoid out all the time that one in, in every seven people in this country can trace their families back somehow through Brooklyn. So it's constantly spilling over. And it's, you know, retaining history here is very, very difficult but again, you know, I have this philosophy that, again, uh, New York City is not re- representative, per se, of America. America is not representative, per se, of New York City. Uh, we're different, and we're more international, uh, along with those other cities of the world. And this city truly belongs to the globe, uh, not necessarily to the residents of the five boroughs.
0: Gary, wherever you want to pick it up from
1: there. I, uh, you know, Mike, you make great points. I totally agree with you. It's a shame, but that's kind of that's kind of how it is. I really think you hit you hit it out of the park with your comment there about being an international city. Um, couldn't have said it any better. And there only is one way to go, and that that is up. I mean. When I was a kid, the Empire State Building was, like, it, the icon. Now, when I drive into Manhattan, there are these apartment buildings that are all taller than it. It just, to <laughs> me, it just, it just, it's mind-boggling that they, I guess, allowed any buildings to be bigger than that because it was, you know, the Empire State, but, you know, those, apart, and you know the apartment buildings I'm talking about by Central Park, they look like pencils. They're like the
0: thinnest yeah.
1: <laughs> apartment buildings, but I mean, they they are taller than the Empire State Building, which I just find amazing. I, I'm, I'm shocked we're talking about this other than baseball, but this is a great topic. <laughs> yeah, no,
0: it, it, and, and I think that's just you know, baseball is America, and America is baseball, and baseball is New York, <laughs> so like yep. it all, it all comes back around and 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 I'll I'll bring it back to the Empire State Building in a moment but um well uh Mike I was going to say this about the Empire State Building the I- irony about the Empire State Building is that they bulldoze a remarkable piece of architecture in the original Waldorf Astoria to build progress in the Empire State Building
2: yeah wasn't the first time they did something like that and it certainly wasn't the last time they did something like that uh somehow you know we keep repeating that mistake but again it's uh the movers and the shakers and the money makers they get to decide
0: yes they do um and people apparently will decide to live there, because that's really what it all comes down to. And it's funny to think that, the, you know, it's one of the only things that you it, – it, it, the supply demand isn't necessarily when it comes to commercial real estate business. They're, you know, just thinking about – I think what I was also going to say, too, Gary, was the fact that Hudson Yard. Now obscures, uh, obscures, uh, obstructs the view of the Empire State Building in many different yeah, angles yep. uh, on yep. New Jersey. And uh, you know, when I when I see the skyline and I can't see the Empire State Building, I almost say to myself, "Not my skyline."
1: Um,
0: but it's still, it is still remarkable. It's still beautiful. They did the same thing with the uh, One Manhattan Plaza on the Brooklyn side. Uh, the Brooklyn view uh, where you can't really like where, where this, this random skyscraper right north of the Manhattan bridge obstructs the uh, Midtown Manhattan Vista from the Brooklyn side of the Brooklyn bridge. And there, you know, this is where it all comes down to the politicians not necessarily protecting the, the the commercial real estateers, you know, protecting against the commercial real estateers who aren't going to give one single shit about basically the continuity that you are presenting to the rest of the world who's coming over and walking across the Brooklyn Bridge to get the the photo opportunity that is there for years and years and years and. Uh, you know, it's just again we're we're getting away we're get, we're getting away from baseball, but, <laughs> but 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 Mike, you and I were just talking the other night and, and uh, off air as well. We were talking about modern ball, so this is the same frustrations that maybe you know some of us you know old men on the lawn shaking our fists at the sky. Uh, but it, it it's true. Uh, there there seems to be a lack of nostalgia and a lack of sentimentality when it comes to, to both the game that we love as well as the city and the architecture that we love.
2: Time stands still for no one.
0: And I will get us back That's on it. track with something that I found uh, very, just, it was amazing. And I haven't watched it. I probably have seen it a long time ago, but Gary, Uh, I will go to you first, and I sent both of you together the YouTube video that I found of Gil Hodges and Willie Mays facing each other in TV's Home Run Derby back, I believe it was 1961, (laughs) if I'm correct. Have you watched this, Gary?
1: I have not seen it, no, and I saw you sent it, but I'm afraid if I hit the button, I'll be disconnected here. So I don't want to do that.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Mike, have you ever seen this?
2: Uh, I've seen the show, I've seen Willie Mays on it, I've seen uh, Mickey Mantle on it, but I don't <laughs> think I've ever taken in, I don't think I've ever taken in Willie Mays versus uh, Gil Hodges, so, uh I am I have the same interpretation as Gary, if I hit it, I might lose connection.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, I love that Gary just added the soundtrack to our podcast, and I, I believe if it's this- if it's on YouTube, uh, uh, which probably already commits some copyright violations, then us having a, a one-second clip of that lovely, lovely home run derby tune at the beginning of it—I, I, you know, this is probably the the thing that I'm going to do next after uh, this podcast is watch Gil Hodges and Willie Mays. I mean, talk about a a time capsule, Gary.
1: Yeah, you know. Uh... I, I think, you know, I think I got it on. I think, wasn't it in Wrigley Field in uh, California the game, the yes. uh, derby was held? Yeah, yes. I, I see it now, and I, I see Hodges there with, with Willie. That's a great, great, great stuff, really is. And to see them both so so young and uh, really Hodges died so early. I remember when he died, you know, a few years after they won the World Series. Um, I was old enough to understand what was going on. It was it was shameful that, that what happened to him. Yeah, really a young guy and he he's, I I did of course I didn't see him get to play. I remember him uh, you know, looking him up, playing for the Dodgers and I, I do remember that he managed the uh, uh the Senators and then came to the Mets and uh was instrumental mm-hmm. in them um winning that first world series.
0: So I'm reading this right here filmed in California for three weeks in December of 1959. The series aired in syndication from January 9th to July 2nd, 1960 and helped inspire the home run derby event that is now held the day before the annual major league baseball all-star game. ESPN staged a revival of the show in 1989. Um, Looking at this, I mean, it it is remarkable. I, I, for one thing, you know, considering that this is now, I think, like a storage facility, Mike, if you look, speaking of, of tearing down history, uh, this, I believe, is in the south central location of Los Angeles, uh, Wrigley Field. And if this was literally, all these episodes were filmed, I, I have to look up exactly what they mean by filmed in California for three weeks in December of 1959. Um they, I guess they just, you know, churned out about 20-something episodes uh, with some of the best uh, baseball had to offer at the time. And here you have a very recently turned San Francisco and Los Angeles Dodgers franchise.
2: Uh, indeed. Uh, everything changed. Everything changed. Uh, you know, uh, California... Uh, when the National League got there, the American League scurried to get into California and, and compete, uh, with the Angels and the Seattle Pilots and, you know, uprooting the A's all over again from Kansas City to Oakland. Uh, you know, some would argue that the American League acted hastily in some of those decisions and, and trying to, uh, follow and compete against the National League but again uh, it's a signal that times are changing Uh, you know uh, the National League and the American League no longer have that business rivalry Commissioner Selig eliminated that when he eliminated the individual offices and now MLB is under one umbrella so you know uh, everything changes and like I said time stands still for no one
1: yeah, now next year they're talking about there's basically going to be every team is going to play every team.
2: Yeah.
0: Yeah. How are they going to make that schedule work for everybody? That that's, that's going to be very interesting. I think they're. Gonna, uh, I mean, in, in the disgusting way possible.
1: <laughs> yeah, they're going to cut down the interdivisional games, and then you know, so the Mets will be playing the Braves and the Phillies. Instead of 18 or 19 times, I probably like I would assume like 15 times, something, something to that effect.
0: Yeah. However, they make it work with everybody facing each other at some point. But, you know, you have to still Mike have those that amount of of, of games in some fashion, whether it's 15 or, or or not. You you have to there has to be divisional rivals. I mean, I'm trying to think about the way it works in basketball, and it seems to be that, uh, you know, let's say the Brooklyn Nets and the New York Knicks, they face each other four times. Am I correct? Uh, Yeah. Or is it more than that? So four times.
2: Uh, It's it's either four or five times. I think it's four.
0: So it seems to me that that, yeah.
2: I mean, I, I... I can't stand into league anymore. I never liked it in the first place. But at least the schedules are going to be evened out and fair. Uh, Whereas previously, you know, let's just use the Mets, the Braves, and the Phillies for an example. We wouldn't have had the same schedule. We might have played the Twins. The Phillies might have played, I don't know, Seattle. And the Braves might have played uh, the Texas Rangers. Uh, at least now there's going to be uniformity and everyone will play all the teams in equal amounts. So that randomness, at least that part of the scheduling has been eliminated.
0: You are, you are listening to the Bedford and Sullivan podcast and we are so thankful that you are. And, Uh, I'm going to – we're going to go to the uh, modern game and ask Gary about uh, the 2022 San Francisco Giants. And looking, you know, you're coming off of a surprise 107-55 first-place victory in the NL West last year. Uh, So how how are you guys looking going into the 2022 season? Sam,
1: we're not going to win 107 games, Okay. That I'll tell you right off the bat. <laughs> last, last last year came out of nowhere. It was an amazing year. I was tired at the end of the year. I, that's how it, this every day they had a win and the Dodgers won. It was it was a great series. My only regret: you win that many games. It's a shame they couldn't win the World Series because. I don't know how many opportunities you get to be that good for that period of time and not cash in. And the Dodgers had more talent than them on paper. There's there's no question about it. Do I think that the season uh, then was, you know, it ended poorly because they didn't win? No, I was still very, very proud of them. Uh, this year going in, I think the Giants have a very good pitching staff. Um, their starters are very good. Are they great? No. Logan Webb has a chance to be very, very good, uh, as does uh, Rodon, who they got from the White Sox. Um, I think their uh, hitting has, uh, needs to improve. Um, they did not replace Chris Bryant or Buster Posey. Um, Evan Longoria is always hurt. Um, if he doesn't come back, I'm not going to shed tears. Um, and, but the, the most important thing is I think they have, um, the, uh, front office knows what they're doing. And if they need to get a player and if a player is avail- available, to help them, you know, into the season, I think a deal will be made. Uh, so I am looking forward very much to the season. Um, but my expectations cannot be anywhere near as high as they were at the end of the season where I actually started to believe that they could win the World Series.
0: Hmm. You know, Mike, it seemed as if the Dodgers leapfrogged the Giants uh, after the Giants won their first three World Championships on San Francisco soil. Um, And then all of a sudden last year, the rivalry was just rekindled in the best way possible, the two best teams in the National League, and quite the series to finish that rivalry for
2: 2021. Sure. Uh, I know those two fan bases, man, they go at it. (laughs) They go at it like the Hatfields and and the McCoys uh but last year what the Giants accomplished is every general manager's dream you know uh, aside from not winning the world series you think about their off season and all their transactions and all the players that they brought in and that veteran lineup uh, almost everybody was 30 years or older uh to win 107 games like i said that's a general manager's dream uh you know they fell a little short of the ultimate goal but uh, what an excellent season and uh you know it worked out rarely do you see uh that many transactions uh so many veterans come together and put together a season like they did last year uh The next best example I could possibly think of might be uh the Phillies from the eighties, I believe the Weeds kids, not the Wiz kids the weeds kids kids uh. But uh, that was a good job by then. And and Gary said it very well. The front office over there, they know what they're doing. So uh, I would have confidence moving forward if I was a Giants fan, a San Francisco Giants fan.
0: Well, um, Gary, I, I forget who it was within the ranks of the New York Giants Preservation Society that said to me uh, that if the Los Angeles Angels of Anaheim can be as such – then you can certainly call the Giants the San the New York Giants of San Francisco. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, a lot of these gentlemen still think that the Giants are on vacation in San Francisco, and they will eventually return home. So,
0: but um, Mike, do you think they're going to build a ballpark? For, yeah, you think they're going to build a ballpark for the Dodgers one day in Brooklyn?
2: <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know. Who knows? Life is funny.
0: <laughs> Gary, go ahead. I cut you off. No, no.
1: <laughs> now I lost my train of thought. But, uh, you know, the funny thing is, as all of you know, and Sam, I know you like basketball, the the Nets are playing where uh, the proposed new Ebbets Field was going to be. That's where um, O'Malley wanted to put the new ballpark. And uh, Robert Moses told them no. It's the same exact location where the Dodgers wanted to play. Uh,
0: uh, Mike, do you think it would have been called O'Malley Grounds as opposed to Ebbets Field?
2: That's a good question. And maybe you can answer that better than I can. Uh, Digging into all the archives and whatnot. I don't know what the proposed name for that place would have been. But, uh,
0: Well, you know, uh, considering that that Dodger Stadium Stadium was basically a shrine to Walter O'Malley, and yet as much as we vilify him, he did not call it O'Malley Stadium. He called it what it was, Dodger Stadium.
2: Uh, This is true. This is very true. He could have easily put his name on there like so many others did, but he didn't. So, Uh, good point.
0: And um, to bring it back to New York, Gary, and another proposed site for the Dodgers, I do believe that it was uh, appropriately named Shea Stadium.
1: Yeah, he was the guy who brought uh, baseball back to New York, William Shea. Um, I know the giant- you know, the, the Giants were going to leave and. No matter what it seemed, and the Dodgers were kinda of hemming and whorring. But because, you know, the Dodgers were making I think more money at the time than the Yankees. But, you know, O'Malley wanted it his way and you know, that's why I feel that I think the Giant fans are more accepting that they left even though you know, if I was a kid and a half and I'd be heartbroken. I don't know if I could root for my team. Uh but I think the Dodgers were more interwoven into the fabric of uh, Brooklyn, and and that just the love affair cannot be replaced, and that's why you have, I think, more much more hatred toward O'Malley than than Horace Stoneham.
0: Mike, imagine a world where the Giants moved to Mount Vernon and the Dodgers moved to Queens.
2: Imagine that world uh, the Giants could have easily pulled that off. they wouldn't have had to change their jerseys, but uh I believe it was the uh, it was Larry mcphail and he I, I, he said it best in in that book uh that you know the Yankees have new york uh the Giants have New York across their chest. the Dodgers we're confined to the to the borders of this borough. That's all we have. Uh, so, you know, and then came O'Malley, and he was like, we're the Brooklyn Dodgers. We're not going to be the Queens Dodgers. So whereas the Giants could have pulled that off and still called themselves the New York Giants, uh, I don't think the Queens Dodgers would have rolled out of any anybody's mouth with uh, any kind of ease.
0: <laughs> well, you know, uh, Gary, nobody ever thought to call the Giants the Manhattan Giants, which also does not sound – does not roll off the tongue with ease, as Mike says.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think uh, originally with the Gothams and, you know, big guys, I I totally agree with Mike. You know, New York encompasses – any you play anywhere, and you could still keep that moniker, but – to ask the Dodgers to play in Queens and be called the Brooklyn Dodgers or the Queens Dodgers, it, it just wouldn't work.
0: Yeah, it you know, it's Mike. It's just saying it out loud. And, and I don't know if it's just conditioning or what, but there's something about Queens that uh, only goes with a few nicknames. <laughs> I don't know. It just <laughs> doesn't sound appropriate. <laughs>
2: It's one of the five boroughs, and Queens has a great history, and people from Queens are proud. And uh, a lot of things going on in Queens, but uh, a lot of good things. A lot of good things going on in Queens, but you know, Mr. Stonem. I think he was having. You mentioned it, Sam. Uh, O'Malley was making money. The Dodgers were making money. Handle with this. Stonem was in a conundrum. He had a more legitimate reason to leave. And as we know, he wanted to go to Minnesota and he was convinced to go to San Francisco. Uh, But he had a more legitimate beef. Uh, He knew, he already knew the city wasn't going to help them, you know, secure real estate or uh, help them build a new park in any way, shape or form. Whereas O'Malley, uh, let's not forget, he still had options. And Mr. Rockefeller... Offered to help him finance acquisition of the property so he could build a stadium. Still refused. And he still took the deal and went to LA. Now we all know, uh, that was a deal he couldn't refuse. It was just such a great offer. Who could refuse that? But, uh, Stone wasn't catching a lot of heat, I don't believe. Uh, his, his beats were a lot, a lot more legitimate and, and real true to life than O'Malley's were, even though, yeah, Ebbets was becoming old and, uh you know, run down, but still O'Malley had an option available to him that Mr. Stoner perhaps did not. And it was Mr. O'Malley who instigated that both teams go to the West Coast. You
0: know, Walter O'Malley had a window of three years to not leave for Los Angeles and he sped up the process Terry. He
1: he had it in his mind to leave. That that's for sure and you know like I said before they were they were so profitable I remember reading they were making more money than the Yankees but it was in his mind to go and and you know the Giants were complaining about uh lack of parking spaces, the uh, ethnicity and the deterioration of uh, where they were playing. You know, they were concerned um, with the neighborhood changing and, uh, you know, crime and stuff around the area. And, you know, the famous line of, uh, well, you know, Stoneham saying he hasn't seen any of the fathers at the game. That's why they were... I think the last game drew like 11,000 people. It was just uh just I think just a whole lot of issues rolled up into one made their their leaving much more uh, understandable than the Dodgers leaving.
0: You know, Mike, it's so it's it's just so funny to think about the way people's thought processes work and and evolve or devolve, however you want to look at it. But the the Giants started that decade with Willie Mays playing stickball with the neighborhood kids. Mike, you there?
2: My apologies. My apologies. Dollar in the jar. But you're talking about a day where, uh, you know, athletes were less separated from the average person? You know, I mean, even back in the 1800s, uh, ballplayers were being paid six, seven times more, eight times more than the common man. You know, if they were pulling in twenty five hundred to five thousand dollars a year, that was a lot of money back then. So there was always that, uh, you know, distinction between the athlete's salary and the workman's salary. Uh, but the 50s, we're still talking about an era. Where you know celebrity and pomp and uh all of that, and especially the the, the money uh part of the advent of free agency uh you know they were approachable and they weren't intimidated by fans uh i I think uh the whole relationship was just a little well, not a little but very different. You hear the stories about Ebbets Field, and I'm sure the same took place at the Polo Grounds prior to games uh, that players and fans interacted, and it was it was happening. And we know Dodgers took the train to work, and I'm sure there were New York Giants that took the train to work, uh, and that was common to be on, say, the IRT and see a ball a ball player, and uh, we've heard the anecdote. Hey, Gil. Have a good game today. And you'd be like, thanks, chum. You know, I'll, I'll try to do good for the for the neighborhood. Those days are gone. I don't think New, York, New Yorkers per se are starstruck. I think we're far from it. Uh, but those days of intermingling are, they've been over. They've been over. Uh, you can't intermingle without security now or bodyguards or police barriers. Or uh, a fixed function, or waiting online and paying, you know, to see somebody and say hello and get an autograph or shake a hand. You know, those days are over. The the humanity, uh, the interconnectedness, the interrelationships between uh, ball player and fan that was still going on in Willie Mays' days and Gil Hodges' days. Uh, I, I can't point a finger. It actually died. But I'm sure money had a great deal to do with it. So, you know, we're talking somewhere in the neighborhood not, you know, long after Marvin Miller introduced free agency and things just got way out of control. And, you know, you start making that kind of money, you separate yourself from reality. You pay to live in a bubble. You pay to separate yourself from the common person and common problems and, and, you know, everyday struggle and strife. You can afford to. And that's why I believe that most, a lot of athletes, you know, they forget where they come from and they, like I said, they pay for their bubble and, uh, you know, that interaction and sociability is out the window.
0: You know, sometimes it, it may be that, and sometimes it also just may be the, the makeup of the person. And I may be getting The name's wrong, uh, or at least the name of the person who uh, went over to the kid. But I I heard a story of um, Bryce Harper uh, while kids were trying to get his attention to sign autographs, uh, you know, and he was just doing some drills. Um, He kind of barked at them and said, I'm working. And Ian Desmond saw this happening, and Ian Ian Desmond's the name that I might be getting incorrect, but I, I believe this was the, this was the story I heard. And uh, Ian Desmond, having seen this unfold, went over to the kids uh, and signed every single one of their baseballs. So it it may not just be the era, but sometimes the way that people handle the era. Um, Gary, you know like Mike was saying about just taking the train or, or uh, living in the neighborhood, you know, Jackie Robinson was in East Flatbush when he, he was playing uh, for the Dodgers. Um, Pee Wee Reese, Duke Snyder, Carl Erskine, they were all in Bay Ridge. Um, I'm sure you, you may know where uh, Willie Mays and some other players were, were living up there, but you know, they did regardless of, the difference in salary, they lived amongst the fans. They lived in the neighborhood. They went to the supermarket, or, well, it wasn't really a supermarket then, but they went to the market. They they went to the places in your neighborhood.
1: You know, May, Mays lived on, I think it was 80, 80th St. Nicholas Place, Um, you know, and, he did play stickball there, then he brought the kids out for ice cream. And if you're ever on where that apartment is, I mean, it's a stone's throw from where the, the stadium was. So he was really involved in the community there, and that's why that's why he was so beloved by the kids. And, and you know, in the 60s and the 50s, you know, the race was always an important thing and. That was one person. Race, I don't think it meant anything to anybody when it came to Willie Mays. He was loved as a baseball player. They didn't see any color. They really didn't. And, and you know, Jackie Robinson had such a rough time, and he handled it with such grace and poise until he finally could say something. And uh, I'm sure Mays went through stuff, but he was so beloved. By giant fans and and again, I stated earlier, most of them remain loyal to the giants because of Willie Mays
0: that is the uh you know the the song that we continue to hear about Willie may's Mike is that there was just something about this ball player that kept people tuning in.
2: Absolutely. Uh, he was great. He was special. And as Gary says, that's why he remains uh, in our hearts and our minds and in our conversations, just like Gil. Uh, I, I will take this uh, off track for just one second uh, because race was an issue. And for anybody listening, I highly recommend you read the great migration by isabel wilkerson to get a better understanding of american history and uh the migration of the african american out of the south into northern cities and it took place in three waves and it directed itself in three different directions and the way of southern migration into New York City, uh, where more of a Floridian influence than, say, Chicago was. I I, I don't want to get into this. I'll I will just recommend read The Great Migration by Isabel Wilkerson. Give you a better perspective of what happened in this country during these time periods. Get associated with it. We're still in this pandemic and we know a lot of things happened. A lot of emotions came to the forefront. A lot of, a lot of ph- ph- philosophical debate. A lot of things. So if you want to learn and choose not to remain ignorant, And if you truly want to gain an understanding, as opposed to just spitting out opinions with no basis, education, or otherwise, please read this book. Sorry, Sam.
0: No, I appreciate it. And just to clarify, is the book The Warmth of Other Suns, The Epic Story of America's Great Migration?
2: Uh, The one I speak is titled The Great Migration. Uh, I don't know if the two are related. I know what you're
0: talking about.
2: I know what you're talking about. Uh, But I believe The Great Migration stands on its own.
0: I will take a look, and everybody should as well. You have been listening to the Bedford & Sullivan podcast. Our guest tonight has been Gary Mintz of the New York Giants Preservation Society, and we're always so thankful uh, that he joins us to give us the black and orange side of things, as I like to say, um, and before I give it to our featured guest for his uh, shameless plug and final word, I'm going to give it to uh, the Brooklyn trolley blogger, uh Michael Colon, coming at us live from Bensonhurst, Brooklyn, uh, for his <laughs> shameless plug and final word
2: Ah uh, shameless plug, the Brooklyn Trolley blogger. Just a little simple spin on the Brooklyn Trolley Dodgers. That's the name of my blog, and that's where uh, I, I'm a fan. I just do baseball stuff. Last summer, uh, as you mentioned, Sam, uh, I recapped the entire season, the entire 1921 season of the New York Giants and the New York, and the New York Yankees that culminated in the World Series at the Polo Grounds. Uh, 1921, I find to be one of the most fascinating narratives and tales in all of baseball history. Uh, So that's where um, uh, you can find me. That's what I'm doing. And uh, thank you, Sam. Thank you for having me. And
0: Mike, I appreciate you bringing that back around since that's all I talked about before the podcast. And of course, this was the first we mentioned it on air about that 1921 (laughs) season. So it's, it's, You know, so it's interesting and fascinating all the different places that conversation can take you. So thank you for that, and we look forward to uh, taking a look at what you have further on the Brooklyn Trolley Blogger website. Um, So without further ado, I will go to Gary Mintz, the New York Giants Preservation Society. Shameless plug and final word, please. Well, final
1: words. Mike, I really appreciate everything you had to say it's very very interesting you had some great comments and great thoughts thank you for sharing them
2: gary likewise Um, it's been a pleasure speaking with you thank you thank you very kindly.
1: yeah same and of course same to you uh sam for having us um just anybody's interested in um joining a great organization we do not charge dues or anything we have you know live entertainment most thursdays having to do with uh most ninety percent of the time with the uh, with the giants both in new york and san francisco um I don't usually publish our events online just because I get fearful sometimes of uh who might come and uh disrupt um, disrupt the programming uh but we have i send out constant information so if you uh, would like to join our society you can contact Sam he'll get you out my email and uh, we'd love to have you aboard again it's a great organization uh, we are very proud of what we've achieved uh, we are not uh, we are proactive we are not just sitting here living in the past although Based on some of our discussions tonight, that might not be such a bad thing, but we do look forward <laughs> uh we uh want things to uh progress, and uh we don't want the uh the legacy of the New York Giants to die out, even though uh a lot of us are getting up there in age well
0: one way or another uh you know age gets the the age and time gets the best of all of us. Uh, I'm catching up to all of you rather quickly. But somehow some way we're going to keep Wait, how, can in you, how can you how could you catch
1: how could you catch up quickly? <laughs> we're still going ahead so you're always going to be the same young guy you are compared to us.
0: It's always it's one of my favorite phrases. Uh anytime Anytime anybody says, oh, you're still such a young man, and I'd say, well, I'm catching up quickly. <laughs> so, um, I, you know, it, like, one day uh, everything will catch up to us. But for now, we have to continue to champion the New York baseball giants. We have to keep championing the Brooklyn baseball Dodgers. And this the story of America – and modern America at that can all be told through the story of these two teams in this great city that we live in. And, uh, my favorite city as I always like to say is the city of Brooklyn, but I do hail from Manhattan and I cannot leave my Manhattan roots behind. So, um, Everybody out there, make sure that you uh, check out the New York Giants Preservation Society. Make sure that you check out Brooklyn Trolley Blogger. And rest in peace, rest easy, Gil Hodges. And rest in peace, rest easy, Tommy Davis. Good night, everybody. Thank you for listening. Catch you next time. Take care.